Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Is Merck's COVID drug Legevrio causing new mutations of the virus in patients? That's what a new preprint study is saying. Hunter Biden is asking federal agencies to investigate the possible illegal handling of personal data on his infamous laptop. This marks the first time he's acknowledged the laptop was really his. No classified documents at President Biden's beach home. How significant is the FBI's revelation? And how does Biden's visit to the property two weeks ago play a role? We bring you analysis. Senator Michael Bennett sends a letter to the CEOs of Apple and Google's parent company. He wants them to remove TikTok from their app stores. Chinese citizens continue to upload footage of the country's COVID-19 wave, while Beijing now claims that the outbreak has ended. A new study says a COVID-19 pill is causing new variations of the virus in some patients. Mutations linked to the use of Merck's pill Legevrio have been identified in viral samples taken from dozens of patients. Bloomberg reported the preprint study was written by researchers in the U.S. and U.K. They fear Legevrio may create more contagious or health-threatening COVID variants. The team examined around 13 million viral genomes and databases around the world. They found Legevrio-induced mutations in small clusters of patients. This indicates that new versions were spreading among them. According to Bloomberg, the drug-linked mutations were proportionately more common in countries where the use of Legevrio was likely. The study highlights the risk of intentionally seeking to alter the pathogen's genetic code. Merck says research done in animals showed its drug didn't cause mutations. The U.S. National Institutes of Health says the drug shouldn't be used when alternatives are available. In related news, the FDA just changed the authorization of the drug to allow its prescription without a positive COVID test. A lawyer for Hunter Biden, for the first time, acknowledged that the infamous laptop really belonged to Hunter. They're now calling for an investigation into various people, most of them allies of former President Trump. A lawyer for President Biden's son, Hunter, is urging state and federal agencies to probe what happened with Hunter's laptop after he dropped it off at a Delaware Mac repair shop in 2019. Hunter and his lawyer argue that close allies of former President Donald Trump tried to weaponize the laptop's contents. The lawyer sent a letter on Wednesday calling for an investigation into former Trump chief strategist Steve Bannon, campaign lawyer and former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, as well as Giuliani's own lawyer, Robert Costello, and the owner of the Delaware Computer Repair Shop, John Paul MacIsaac. They sent the letter to the Delaware Attorney General, the DOJ's National Security Division, and the IRS, writing, we write on behalf of our client, Robert Hunter Biden, to request an investigation into the following individuals, for whom there is considerable reason to believe violated various federal laws in accessing, copying, manipulating, and or disseminating Mr. Biden's personal computer data. The letter goes on to claim that store owner Mac Isaac unlawfully accessed Hunter Biden's personal data and distributed its contents to the political enemies of Mr. Biden's father without Mr. Biden's consent. The lawyer argues that in the end, multiple parties, including the New York Post, ended up with a copy of Hunter's personal data, to which he did not consent. Store owner Mac Isaac responded to the letter, noting to the New York Post that the letter was delivered as Republicans are starting probes into Hunter Biden. I think with Congress starting investigations next week, it's a scare tactic. 
the flak is heaviest when you are over the target. Costello was asked to respond on Giuliani's behalf. He said the letter reeks of desperation because they know Judgment Day is coming for the Bidens. The letter does not necessarily mean that federal prosecutors or law enforcement agencies will open an investigation into the claims or take any other actions. We have updates and analysis on the FBI's recent search of President Biden's beach home. At issue are whether the president consented to the search, his January 20th to 23rd visit to the property, and a comparison between the probes over classified documents into a sitting president versus that of former President Trump. Joining us to discuss is Mark Ruskin. Mark spent 20 years as an FBI special agent, primarily undercover, and is the author of The Pretender, My Life Undercover for the FBI. He's also a former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn. It's great to have you with us today, Mark. Good morning, Kevin. Great to be here. The FBI search of President Biden's home in Rehoboth, Delaware, turned up no classified documents, according to one of his lawyers. What does this mean for the broader Biden classified document probe? I would suggest that it really has a very little significance with regard to the probe in its entirety. First, uh, the search may have been a, a consent search. It's not necessarily, you know, all searches don't have to be pursuant to a warrant if the individual whose property is being searched consents to the search. I would suggest in this case, it would behoove the president to have consented to the search. Also, the fact that uh, he was at the home just a short 10 days ago or so, w kind of diminishes the importance as we don't know what, if anything, occurred with regard to the doc to documents, if there were any, during that particular visit. Yes, that is an important detail you mentioned, whether this is a consent search. Now, I want to look at the two administrations here. Former President Trump and former VP Mike Pence also had classified documents. Since that's the case, is it likely anyone from either administration will be charged here? Well, ag again, it... What, the, what is very would be very significant is first what was the content of those documents, whether or not it endangered national security, or whether they were simply uh, innocuous, and the other factor would be what was the classification. It, documents are not just classified or unclassified; they can be unclassified, classified, secret, top secret, top secret SCI, or top secret SCI, no form. So there are many different degrees, and depending on the severity, that would impact on whether or not there was a, be a, a decision to prosecute. Now, Mark, you mentioned whether this would endanger national security. What information do we need to know in order to know if national security was at risk, whether it be intentionally or not, surrounding the handling of these classified documents? Well, the documents would have to be reviewed by someone with authority to, to have access to classified documents and the capability of making such a determination, and it would have to be done in a nonpartisan way. So you'd have to have individuals from, from different uh, persuasions examining the, uh, the content. But, but otherwise, there's no way to know. If they, are in, if, they would, if they are secret and dangerous, they can't simply be released to the general public. But someone who's neutral would have to uh, uh, examine them. Can you give us an assessment of the cause and effect here between just how the White House has been handling this in terms of the investigation from the DOJ? Well, you know, the, you know, the, the White House attorneys have been, in, uh, the personal attorneys and, and the counsel at the White House have been involved to a, a large degree. Now, it's natural that they would be involved to a certain extent, in fact, in, due to the fact that they're dealing with a, a sitting uh, president. 
you know, in the case of uh, President Trump, as a former president, he's not going to have the same level of, uh, in, uh, the same degree of involvement from, from attorneys who are associated with the government. But there does seem to be a disparity in, in the uh, treatment of the two of them, I would suggest. Yes, it's something to take a closer look at, and I know what you mean about the level of comfort that they each have given their positions. Mark Ruskin, FBI Special Agent, it is really great to hear your analysis. Great to be here, Kevin. Thank you. A Democratic Party donor and fundraiser host was indicted on federal charges in two states. He allegedly embezzled over $18 million from clients. In California, Tom Girardi faces a maximum 20-year prison sentence. The charge is embezzling funds to cover his law firm's expenses plus his personal expenses. The firm collapsed in 2020. In Chicago, he and others are accused of stealing money meant for the family members of plane crash victims. Girardi was one of the most prominent Los Angeles attorneys before he was disbarred last year. He has ties with many Democratic Party politicians and donated to politicians at many levels of government. Attorneys general in 20 Republican-led states have sent a warning to CVS and Walgreens about abortion pills. They say the companies could face legal consequences if they sell the pills by mail in their states. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey sent the cautionary letter co-signed by 19 other attorneys general. Bailey says federal law expressly prohibits using the mail to send or receive any drug that will be used or applied for producing an abortion. CVS and Walgreens recently announced that they are seeking FDA certification to do just that. The companies announced this decision after the Biden administration lent its support to receiving abortion pills by mail. Missouri is among the states that implemented abortion access prohibitions last summer. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has proposed a nearly $115 billion state budget for 2023-24. DeSantis used the Framework for Freedom budget to showcase the state's strengths under his leadership. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the details. That is strong performance. The governor says Florida's focus on freedom has led the state to outpace the nation on all fronts. The new budget will increase state budgetary reserves to nearly $16 billion, more than triple what it was in Florida's 2019 budget. DeSantis says you don't want to be like California, where you have a massive budget shortfall. On education, DeSantis says inflation has been persistent nationwide, but you won't see that when you get your kid's college bill. You're not seeing any inflation in Florida with our college tuition because we're not allowing any tuition increases uh, at our state universities or state colleges. We are the most affordable state in the country for higher education. Raising a family puts a lot of financial pressure on people, and Florida is reflecting that in the proposed budget. We're also doing permanent sales tax exclusions on all baby necessities, including cribs and strollers. It's hard enough raising kids as it is. Now you get baby food, diapers, wipes, the whole baby clothes, the whole shebang, including things like cribs and strollers, which are very, very expensive. So that is going to be permanently uh, tax-free. And for pets, well, DeSantis says they're part of the family, too, so tax-free pet food and over-the-counter medication. Many people travel to Florida each year to enjoy its sandy beaches and warm weather, and the governor is focusing on the importance of having a good time. We're going to do 15-week sales tax 
for what we call the Freedom Summer. So this is outdoor recreation, this is tickets for events and museums, and really things so people can enjoy the summertime in the state of Florida. Other items include $7 billion to roadway projects and $3.5 billion to water quality programs such as the Everglades Restoration Project. Meanwhile, the Rainy Day Fund has grown from $1.5 billion to $3.5 billion. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, the United Auto Workers Union is holding its first ever direct election. It's likely to have an impact on everyone in manufacturing. We have that and more just after this break. There's a shortage of judges in a California county, and it's impacting criminal court proceedings. Riverside County dismissed 96 cases in the past week, four of which were felonies. An increase in crime has overwhelmed the county's courts. Three of the recent dismissals were felony child sexual assault cases, including one where a conviction would have resulted in a possible life sentence. The courtroom shortage is a result of judges who were ill or had other commitments like court proceedings or judicial training. A Riverside County court spokeswoman told the Epic Times that the courts are currently 26% understaffed. The courts have been dismissing cases since last October upon experiencing a dramatic increase in the number of criminal cases after a COVID backlog postponement policy ended. Since then, county judges have dismissed over 1,600 cases. Five Hispanic lawmakers in Connecticut have proposed to a bill to eliminate the term Latinx from official use in the state government. They find the term offensive. State Representative Geraldo Reyes said the term Latinx is not a Spanish word, but rather what he calls a woke term that can be considered offensive to Connecticut's Puerto Rican community. The term Latinx has been used by some social commentators in recent years as a gender-neutral alternative to the Spanish words Latina and Latino. It originated in academic circles under the umbrella of inclusivity. But Reyes says the Spanish has used Latino as the general neutral term for centuries. Arkansas has already banned the term Latinx from official use just last month under newly elected Republican Governor Sarah Sanders. The five members whose names are on the Connecticut bill are all Democrats and part of the Black and Puerto Rican caucus in the legislature. A U.S. senator is calling on Apple and Google to remove TikTok from their app stores. Senator Michael Bennett points to the app's Chinese Communist Party connections. Bennett shared his concerns in a letter. He wrote that no company subject to Chinese Communist Party dictates should be allowed broad access to American audiences or the ability to harvest their data. Bennett wrote the February 1st letter to the CEO of Google's parent company and Apple CEO Tim Cook. He wrote that TikTok poses a unique concern because its China-based parent company is obligated to assist with state intelligence work. With this appeal, the Democratic senator stands alongside many Republicans who have sought to curb TikTok's growing reach in the United States. The nation's leading auto workers union, the United Auto Workers, or UAW, is set to soon hold an election. It's the union's first ever direct election of its leadership. The UAW has over, over 370,000 members, but also indirectly affects everyone in manufacturing because it sets the standard for U.S. factory wages. The UAW president serves a four-year term. No candidate received over half the votes in a five-way race held in December. So a runoff election is scheduled between incumbent President Ray Curry and Sean Fain. Both men started their careers on factory floors. 
what's at stake in this election is a key piece about success, continuing the transformation, continuing the improvements that have been made with regard to reform, not taking steps backwards. Until this year, the leaders of the union had always been chosen by delegates rather than by rank-and-file union members. Members voted to hold a direct election this time following a bribery and embezzlement scandal involving union officials. Curry and Fain have both said they would seek to restore pensions and raise general pay. They also want to put an end to different tiers of wages and benefits for workers doing the same jobs. Ballot counting is set to start March 1st. Over a thousand Ukrainian refugees attended a job fair in New York yesterday. Two Jewish community groups teamed up to host the event. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on their stories. Displaced Ukrainians are looking for job opportunities. So the Edith and Karl Marx Jewish Community House of Bensonhurst and the United Jewish Appeal Federation of New York hosted a job fair in Brooklyn. 70 employers from the finance, healthcare, human services, and manufacturing industries attended the event. This neighborhood where we're based in South Brooklyn is one of the largest Russian and Ukrainian speaking ethnic enclaves in New York. And so because of that, we're welcoming so many. But according to New York State's stats, I think more than 20,000 Ukrainian refugees have been absorbed into New York City alone. Kristina Matafanova is from Mariupol. She arrived in New York only a month and a half ago. Uh, because uh, I was a humanitarian worker uh, then in Ukraine. Uh, I supported uh, vulnerable uh, communities uh, there, provided psychosocial and mental health support, and uh, I want to be involved in something similar here. Margarita Monastirska left Kyiv three months ago with her mother and sister. It was an extremely hard decision to make. When we left Kyiv, we had no light, no heat, and there were bombings periodically. At some point, we made the decision that it was time to leave. We had a good life in Kyiv. I'm still not sure whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision to leave, but we are safe here. Dmitro Kuchma left a town near Mariupol in June. He was reunited with his wife and children in December in New York with the help of JCH. I felt just pure happiness. I was really worried about them, and I was waiting to be reunited with them for so long. I'm really grateful to JCH and to their staff for listening to me and helping make it happen for them to come here. Schmolenson said the JCH of Bensonhurst has helped nearly 5,000 Ukrainian refugees. Russia invaded Ukraine last February. Since then, over 14 million Ukrainians have been displaced, according to the United Nations. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Conagra is recalling more than 2.5 million pounds of canned meat. The recall covers various brands of Vienna sausage and potted meat products like these. According to the Department of Agriculture, a packaging defect can allow the products to become contaminated without showing any signs. The affected canned meat was produced between December 12th of last year and January 13th and sold nationwide. The cans have the establishment number P4247. So far, there haven't been any confirmed reports of anyone becoming sick from eating it, but consumers are advised to throw them away or return them to the store. Jeeps to the Rescue, a Jeep club in Dallas, Texas, has been out helping motorists stranded on icy roadways. Canales Off-Road gets together to share their love of Jeeps and raise money for charities. But on Tuesday and Wednesday, they were helping drivers. 
About 30 Jeeps helped tow semi-trucks that got stuck trying to go uphill on I-20. Before that, they helped some people stranded in their cars during the ice storm. They returned to the roads Wednesday to help more drivers in trouble. A spokesman said they would also be helping medical professionals having difficulty getting to and from work. By the way, the group's name, Carnales, is Mexican slang for friends. In Texas, a nerve-wracking moment captured on camera. A police officer dashes through a tornado to rescue his police dog. CCTV footage captured Officer Joel Nichman from the Deer Park Police Department in southeast Texas. He could be seen braving extreme weather conditions to save his partner Ronnie from a parked police vehicle. This took place on January 24th, a day the National Weather Service issued a tornado warning for the Houston area. A twister touched down in Pasadena, Texas, damaging homes, buildings, and power lines. And just ahead, Chinese students abroad. What do they have to promise to the Chinese Communist Party if the party supports them financially? And what does this mean for the countries that accept these students? And the U.S. and South Korea hold military drills amid uncertainty on the Korean Peninsula. North Korea is protesting the move. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. U.S. Senators introduced a bill to protect the Strategic Petroleum Reserve yesterday. It would ban the sale of crude oil from the reserve to China or any company controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. The bipartisan effort is led by Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and Republican Ted Cruz. Manchin says the reserve is meant to help the U.S. and allies through difficult times, not to help the CCP power China's economy. He says the reserve has been used as a policy band-aid for rising gas prices and global unrest caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Eighteen other senators joined Manchin and Cruz in introducing the bill. They include three Democrats, 13 Republicans, and two independents. According to U.S. energy statistics, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was reduced by around 240 million barrels over the last three years. It fell from about 635 million barrels to 388 million starting in January 2020. China, on the other hand, has ignored calls from the U.S. and other countries to release oil from their reserves to help lower fuel prices. They have been boosting their stockpile instead. Satellite images of China's crude oil inventory show a total of around 950 million barrels. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's seen a similar bill that passed in the House. He questioned if other countries like Iran and Russia should be added to the list. Schumer controls the Senate floor schedule. He did not say if he would allow a vote. An update on China's COVID-19 outbreak. Hospitals across China are still overwhelmed, but Beijing says the outbreak is over. The Chinese Communist Party announced over the weekend that the country's current outbreak is coming to an end, but Chinese Internet users posted a new round of video clips suggesting otherwise. A resident from northern China's Hebei province captured how a local hospital was packed with patients over the weekend. Locals witnessed a similar scene inside a major hospital in central China's Zhenzhou city. A staff member from a hospital in eastern China's Shandong province gave a similar report. He told us all beds at his facility are currently occupied. We distorted his voice to protect his safety. 
Now the beds are very tight. All beds are occupied after the Lunar New Year. Basically, the beds are full every day. Given the situation, a resident in Shanghai is calling Beijing's official virus data into question. In Shanghai's Yangpu District Central Hospital, more than 100 people died based on the daily death count. The authorities did not fully report the situation. Many crematoriums in Shanghai cannot meet demand. Official figures are far from the actual situation. A former civil servant also commented. There is no real data here. There's a joke spread among the staff of the Statistics Bureau. Under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, all data is false, except the date. Earlier this week, the chief of the World Health Organization said China's COVID-19 death toll is likely much higher than what China's official data shows. What promises do Chinese students have to make if they're sent abroad on Beijing's money? And what does that mean for America's national security? Agreements discovered in Europe may shed some light on these questions. Entity's Juliet Song has the details. Alarm bells went off in universities in Sweden when they found out that Chinese students who came on Beijing-backed scholarships had to sign agreements with the state. In written contracts, these students must promise they won't engage in activities that harm the interests of the motherland and that they'll follow the management of Chinese consulates. David Nord is the vice dean of the Faculty of Medicine at Lund University in Sweden. Several students at his university were found out to have signed these agreements. So had we known of these contracts beforehand, we would not ever have been able to admit these students. So we realized that there was a contract that we were not aware of. The agreements are between the sponsored students and the China Scholarship Council, or CSC. The agency is under China's Ministry of Education. It sends Chinese students to study on scholarships around the world, including the United States. The CSC works with many elite colleges in the U.S., like Harvard, MIT, and UCLA. About 370,000 Chinese students studied in the U.S. in 2020. And a study says one in every 14 Chinese students in America are sponsored by CSC. But the agency's scholarship comes with a catch. In some cases, it requires the student to swear loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party. Here's an example. In one of the CSC's application guidelines, it said, applicants must support the leadership of the Communist Party and the path of socialism with Chinese characteristics. In another guideline, the CSC said the program would not send out those who have political problems. It also asks recipients to submit periodic research reports to Chinese consulates. It's unclear what the Chinese students are required to report. Tang Jingyuan is a China affairs analyst. He said these agreements may compel Chinese students to engage in intelligence activities or steal intellectual property. They're at risk of being forced to follow the Chinese Communist Party's orders, like participating in the regime's overseas influence operations, gathering intelligence, and stealing intellectual properties. These students might be forced to take on these political tasks. Tao noted, while many Chinese students studying abroad are just there on their own money, countries need to be extra cautious about students sponsored by Beijing. Once they sign the agreement, technically speaking, those students are no longer just average Chinese citizens. They're part of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think it's important to differentiate between those that work for the regime and the Chinese people.
U.S. officials have been raising concerns about Beijing exploiting students to steal intellectual property from the West. In 2020, Washington shut down the Chinese consulate in Houston. The decision was reportedly in part because diplomats there helped Chinese researchers steal sensitive technologies like artificial intelligence. Back to the agreements discovered by the Swedish universities, the contracts didn't explicitly ask the students to pledge allegiance to the regime. But Professor Nord pointed to vague language and phrases like not harming the interest of motherland, calling them concerning. So in Sweden, you could not have a contract where you will have to, to get a certain um, stipend in academia. Uh, you cannot say that you should not be critical to your homeland. That would violate our principle of, of uh, academic freedom and uh, freedom of speech. Nord said there's also another issue with the agreement. A student's guarantor, who is usually a close relative, has to sign the agreement as well. Under the contract, that person can't leave China for over three months as long as the student is studying abroad. And if the student violates the agreement and can't pay back the damages... And then they have to pay instead. And that uh, is a form of collective punishment in a way, uh, which is against the, the values of our university. And it's actually collective punishment. It's against international humanitarian law. Two universities in Sweden have stopped working with CSC. Still, Nord said universities are debating a coordinated approach. Juliet Stomp, NTD News. In Western Canada, citizens are fending off Beijing's long arm of control and saying no to China's network of overseas police outposts. Activists warn that these agencies are being used to track and harass dissidents. Here's what's happening. Vancouver residents rallied against an alleged Chinese police station set up in the city. I care about uh, Canadian democracy and freedom. The CCP is the biggest threat to freedom and democracy in the world. we got to protect our sovereignty. People come here to become free. They came here to be safe. A very brutal Chinese Communist Party to reach out here, that's a bit of a problem. Demonstrators gathered around a property maintained by the Wenzhou Friendship Society. The agency is one of the Chinese regime's so-called overseas service centers. According to Spain-based NGO Safeguard Defenders, more than 100 of the agencies operate worldwide. These groups claim to help Chinese citizens living abroad with passport services, but maintain close ties with Chinese police. Its former and current presidents have very close ties to the Chinese Communist Party. It is also stationed overseas by the Chinese Public Security Bureau. Human rights groups accuse those outposts of cracking down on dissidents and spying for Beijing. Safeguard Defenders estimates that between April 2021 and July 2022, more than 200,000 overseas Chinese nationals were forcibly returned to China to face criminal charges. Threat tactics include harassing and intimidating the target's family members. They are very good at getting close to the line and not crossing the line. The RCMP seem to indicate they need new laws or guidelines or policies in this regard. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police are looking into several of the outposts across the nation. Outside Canada, another alleged police outpost is located in Manhattan, New York. The FBI searched the facility last fall. Similar investigations are underway in over 10 countries, including Ireland and the Netherlands. Over in South Korea, the country's military carried out a joint air drill with the U.S. on Wednesday. This amid rising tensions in the region, North Korea is reacting. 
The drill involved American B-1B heavy bombers and F-22 stealth fighters. There were also the most advanced F-35 fighter jets from both countries. The South Korean Defense Ministry said the drill shows the United States, quote, will and capabilities to provide strong and credible extended deterrence against North Korea's nuclear and missile threats. North Korea's foreign ministry reacted to the drill today, saying it pushed the situation to an extreme red line. The foreign ministry threatened to turn the Korean peninsula into a, quote, huge war arsenal and a more critical war zone. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited South Korea earlier this week and vowed to expand military drills. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, a raid at the home of one of Ukraine's most prominent billionaires. What were security services looking for? We'll return with that and more after this break. And a cash-for-influence corruption scandal in the European Parliament. Did members vote to waive the immunity of two of their own? More shortly here on NTD News Today. Russia is marking the 80th anniversary of a World War II victory over Nazi Germany. Russian President Vladimir Putin compares it to the current war in Ukraine with rhetoric those in the West might find far-fetched. It's incredible. It's incredible, but it's a fact. We are once again being threatened with German leopard tanks with crosses on them. Once again, they are preparing to battle Russia on Ukrainian soil at the hands of the followers of Hitler and Bandera. Those who are betting they will defeat Russia on the battlefield clearly don't understand that modern war with Russia will be quite different for them. We don't send our tanks to their borders, but we have the means to respond, and it won't end with the use of armored vehicles. He gave this speech in a southern city of Volodograd, formerly known as Stalingrad. It was the location of the bloodiest battle of World War II when the Soviet Red Army halted the invading German troops at a cost of more than a million casualties. Putin evoked what he said was the spirit of the defenders of Stalingrad. He condemned Germany for helping to arm Ukraine and vowed that Russia would defeat Ukraine, which he claimed is under the control of Nazism incarnate. This isn't the first time he said he's ready to use Russia's entire arsenal, including nuclear weapons. Security services searched the home of one of Ukraine's most prominent billionaires, Ihor Kolomoisky, yesterday. The targeted figure was once seen as President Volodymyr Zelensky's sponsor. Kyiv reportedly wants to demonstrate that it can be responsible with billions of dollars of Western aid. In just a few days, leaders are set to join a summit with the European Union. Authorities say they uncovered the embezzlement of more than $1 billion at Ukraine's biggest oil company and its biggest refiner. Zelensky ordered both firms seized by the state in November under martial law. Billionaire Kolomoisky once held stakes in both businesses. He has been at the center of corruption allegations and court disputes for years. Staying in Europe, relations are souring between Austria and Russia. Austria is expelling four Russian diplomats, citing a region often evoked in spying cases. Two of them worked at the Russian embassy and two worked at the United Nations. The Austrian foreign ministry didn't specify what they had done, but the ministry said they were expelled for behaving in a manner inconsistent with international agreements. This is a language often used in spying cases. 
Austria has generally been more reluctant than many other Western European countries to expel Russian envoys. So far, it has expelled nine Russian diplomats since 2020. It could be the most disputed Nobel Peace Prize ever given. In 1973, it was awarded to Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and North Vietnam's Le Duc Tao. But newly released papers show it was given with full knowledge that the Vietnam War was unlikely to end anytime soon. In 1973, U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and North Vietnamese envoy Le Duc Tho inked their initials on a Paris peace accord meant to end the Vietnam War, which by that point had killed nearly 60,000 American soldiers and an estimated 2 million Vietnamese civilians. For crafting that ceasefire, Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. But the ceasefire was soon ignored by North and South Vietnamese forces. Two years later, the last Americans beat a hasty retreat from Saigon. Now, newly disclosed records show the person who recommended Kissinger for the Nobel Prize had prescient doubts over whether the Paris Peace Accords would last. The Nobel Committee awarded Kissinger its most distinguished honor anyway, one of the most controversial decisions in Nobel history. I'm even more surprised than I was at the time that the committee could come to such a bad decision. When I look at it, surprises me even further is that the committee was actually fully aware that the Paris Agreement uh, was unlikely to hold in South Vietnam. War was still going on and they had, they wrote in the reports and in the nomination letter that it was not sure at all that this would bring peace. So the prize was given to Kissinger for having got the United States out of Vietnam, for getting United States Vietnam out of Vietnam without any peaceful solution in South Vietnam. Nominations to the Peace Prize remain secret for 50 years. On January 1st, documents about the prize awarded to Kissinger and Hanoi's chief negotiator were made available on request. This year is uh, the 50th year after the prize was given out to Henry Kissinger and Le Duc Tho. And this means that the archives now are open so that we can access the nomination letters and also the small part of the deliberation that the committee made for this prize. The papers reviewed by Reuters revealed Kissinger and Tho were nominated two days after the signing of the peace accords. The Norwegian academic who nominated the pair wrote, quote, I am aware that it is only in the time ahead that it will become clear what kind of significance the accords will have in practice. After the signing, the war raged on, with the North's forces rapidly advancing in the South, which was left to fight without critical U.S. support. Fighting ended only on April 30, 1975, after North Vietnamese forces captured the South's capital, Saigon, triggering evacuation of remaining Americans and local allies by helicopter from the U.S. Embassy rooftop. Le Duc Tho refused the peace prize on the grounds that peace had not been established. Two out of the five members of the Norwegian Nobel Committee, all now dead, resigned in protest. Kissinger, while accepting the award, did not travel to Norway for the ceremony and later tried to return the prize. The committee refused to take it back. Tho died in 1990. Kissinger is 99 years old. He did not respond to a request for comment. The European Parliament is dealing with its own corruption scandal. It voted overwhelmingly on Thursday to waive the immunity of two lawmakers. Those lawmakers are Italian Andrea Cozzolino and Belgian Mark Tarabella, both of the center-left socialists and Democrats. 
Belgian investigators are seeking to question them over a cash-for-influence scheme. Four other current or former parliament members are already in Belgian custody. They are facing charges of corruption and money laundering in relation to alleged payments from Qatar and Morocco. Tarabella voted to waive his own immunity and maintains his innocence. His lawyer says he visited Qatar twice and was fully transparent about those trips to construction sites and work camps. In Austria, a court sentenced six people today over a terrorist attack in 2020 that left four dead. The six were accused of helping an Islamic terrorist carry out the attack. On November 2, 2020, a gunman opened fire at crowds in the Vienna city center, killing four people. He was shot dead by police on the scene. Police said the gunman carried out the attack alone. But six people were accused of providing help beforehand. A court sentenced two of them to life in prison for being accessories to murder. One of them sold the gunman the rifle he used in the attack. Two others received sentences of 20 and 19 years. The remaining two were acquitted of being accessories to murder. Instead, they were sentenced to two years in prison, partially suspended, for being members of a terrorist organization. Three of them plan to appeal the ruling. And coming up, a new tailor in London caters to women. Business is booming despite overall trends pointing towards more relaxed outfits, a result of the work-from-home era. And painting on objects made of paper pulp. An Indian couple is reviving an artistic tradition that dates back centuries. Stay tuned for the story in just a minute. Good to have you back with us. A women's tailor has set up shop in London. The business continues to thrive despite more relaxed fashion trends in the current work-from-home era. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on the hems and alterations. Savile Row has been renowned for its high-end men's tailors since the late 18th century. In 2020, a new tailor made history by opening the first women's-only suit shop, The Deck. It's been a huge struggle for women forever to try and find clothes that fit them as they should and have clothes fit them rather than them squeeze themselves into into clothes and and make that work. By opening her business on Savile Row, Natchbull hopes to rejuvenate the public's perception of suits. For so long, suits were seen on kind of dowdy politicians or bound to women who just sat in boardrooms. And, and actually, you know, a lot of our clients are working women, but they're not necessarily buying for the office. They're buying f- to wear in the office, but also to pick their kids up from school, to go to a black tie dinner, to go for a walk in the country. Natchbull says she's proud of her business for overcoming the pandemic. It's she's also taking advantage of the consumer shift to locally made products. For businesses like ours that focus and put their values on things such as sustainability or longevity, durability, all the things that I talked about, our businesses just flourish because that same £2,000 they might spend on some hugely expensive ball gown made in a kind of sweatshop somewhere, suddenly they were thinking, where do I want my £2,000 to go? At the deck, prices for a single piece of clothing start at $550. A two-piece suit averages between $2,500 and $3,000. If you really break down the cost per wear, you can get down to almost pennies if you really you know, wear this item from us on a daily basis. We're looking at doing things like payment plan solutions and stuff to be able to 
you know, allow more people to shop with us and also looking at bringing out a very kind of small, curated, beautiful line of ready-to-wear made by our same tailors. Overall trends point toward more relaxed outfits, a result of the work-from-home era. But looking sharp never goes out of style. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. An Indian couple is striving to carry on a centuries-old tradition, papier-mâché painting. The art is now vanishing in modern society. The traditional art of papier-mâché in Indian Kashmir is on the verge of decline. To complete a piece, the artist layers paper pulp onto molds of different shapes, like vases, trays, or boxes. Creation begins when the outer shell hardens, which is then polished and painted. An inheritor of paper mache, Mazra Jan, has made a name for herself. In 2011, I made a bow which I sent for state award selections, and I got an award for that. I made a jewelry box in 2012, and I got an award for that too. Then I made a wall hanging and got an award for it in 2016. I have three awards. In the 15th and 16th centuries, Mughal emperors highly favored paper mache. The artifacts often featured lifelike kingfishers, maple leaves, and other designs by expert artisans. But new technology and modern manufacturing are replacing the traditional craft. I want to urge the people to start practicing this art with their family members. Support your family to honor and keep this art alive. Perhaps with the help of this Indian couple, this centuries-old Indian tradition will survive. And still to come, it's Groundhog Day. Find out what Pennsylvania's Phil predicts for the next six weeks and what people in 2023 would do if they were stuck in a time loop like the movie Groundhog Day. And at an international toy fair in Germany, a number of high-tech gadgets are captivating both kids and adults. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. Today is Groundhog Day. Punxsutawney Phil, America's most famous weather forecast animal, saw his own shadow, a sign that spring is still a few weeks away. But above all else, I see a shadow on my stage. And so, no matter how you measure, it's six more weeks of winter weather. The tradition of using hibernating animals to predict warm weather dates back to Roman times. But the town of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, began its own forecast just over a century ago. Every year on February 2nd, Groundhog Phil emerges from his cave. If he doesn't see his own shadow, that means warm weather will come early. Otherwise, winter is thought to last six more weeks. But don't put on another sweater just yet. According to official data from the last 10 years, Phil was correct just 40% of the time. As for why February 2nd is the magic day, it's halfway between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. What if you had to relive today over and over again? The movie Groundhog Day from 1993 explores the idea. We asked people in 30 years later, in 2023, what they would do if they were in the same situation. If I was stuck in a Groundhog Day kind of situation, um, the first thing I would do is just take the time to learn as many new skills as possible, you know, since I'm going to be there and no one else is going anywhere, you know. Um, having access to whole kinds of skills and I think would just 
lend you lots of opportunities um, if you were ever to escape that kind of situation. I think if I had to live the same day over and over, I would hope every day I would show a little bit more mercy, compassion, and forgiveness for other people in my life. I would hope that I would walk a little bit more in integrity and honor than the day before. You know, that's actually my biggest struggle right now because it seems like every day I have to have a different day and then I get upset on why I'm not committing to that. So that's why today I said I'm going to talk to five different business owners, which is like I had to get myself to talk to them and relate. And I love doing that, but why was I afraid? And so um, I'm trying to work on it, but every single day it just comes more peacefully. I will try to focus on what is positive and what is good. And just like in the movie, you know, forget about uh, the negativity in your life and just focus on what's good. I don't think I'd change anything because me and Hannah live life to the fullest every day. This is true. It's true. I think every day I would do something different just to see what the outcome would be, since I know I'm going to be here tomorrow again, so. <laughs> if I know it's the same day, I'll just try to do something different every time. Like, hey, let's, I know I'm going to come back tomorrow, so let's go race, let's go racing, let's go shooting, I don't know, let's go do something fun. You know, it's different days, but it's, you know, it's still the same thing. To celebrate the 30th anniversary of the film, Fathom Events is showing this film in selected theaters across the country today and on Sunday. Bringing virtual reality to puzzles, a big toy fair in Germany is spicing up ordinary games with a digital twist. Let's take a look at what's new at this event. At the Nuremberg Toy Fair, more than 2,000 exhibitors from around 70 countries were vying for the attention of visitors. While kids relish the adventure in the magic maze, adults are navigating another world in the metaverse. Phil Ilner is from the company Room that produces this game. We create a place where you can immerse yourself in a completely new way. You can build a world the way you want it. You can experience things there that don't exist in reality. So we create worlds, whether that's a real place or a fantasy world, that comes at the end of a game. We want to give that feeling between the different worlds and take away the fears of that. Numerous games incorporate elements of augmented reality, adding to the fun of playing. Take this one. Just scan a QR code and a hologram is generated on your phone. Or pet this toy dog and watch its tail wag with neon-colored messages. There's also a remote-controlled transformer and a solar-powered minicar. Even the classic board games are getting a digital boost. Eight-year-old Floor was captivated by a light-driven spider. I think it's cool because I've never seen that either, that you can control a spider with light. Across the hall, 11-year-old Teresa was playing an old-fashioned marble game, but a bit different. It's a lot of fun and it's also very practical. Other marble runs are on the floor and this one is on the window pane or the shelf. It's very tidy. It's also very practical. They have such light adhesives that stick to smooth surfaces and if they get a bit dirty, you can just wash them off and stick them back on. You can just change and vary everything. I like that a lot. The Toy Fair also traditionally presents the Toy Award for outstanding new products. According to organizers, special attention was paid to comprehensibility, fun, originality, safety, workmanship, and quality. More than 60,000 visitors are expected to attend the Toy Fair by the time it wraps up on Sunday. 
The Boeing 747 has been dubbed the queen of the skies, and now it has the crown to prove it. The last one to ever be produced traced the shape of a crown in the sky on its first flight. The plane was flying from Boeing's plant in Washington State to Cincinnati, where it's now part of cargo operator Atlas Air's fleet. On the way, the pilots outlined a huge crown with the numbers 747 inside. It spanned 80 miles and took about two and a half hours. The flight crew said some of the turns were tight, but they were happy to celebrate the plane and called the flight very emotional. Someone with deep pockets has a new set of wheels. A one-of-a-kind Bugatti Chiron Profili was auctioned off for $10.7 million in Paris on Wednesday. This sets a world auction record for the amount of money paid for a new car. The Profili goes from 0 to 62 miles per hour in just over two seconds. And although the unnamed winner of this auction should probably resist the temptation, the car can reach 236 miles per hour. The Profile E will be Bugatti's last purely gas-powered supercar. Valentine's Day often means buying chocolate for one's sweetheart. Now, a new study shows the scientific reason why some people love chocolate so much. Researchers in the UK built a 3D model of a human tongue and used it to discover more about the tasting experience of dark chocolate. They identified that it all comes down to the chemistry and how the outer layer of chocolate, mainly the fat, melts in a person's mouth. First, chocolate comes in contact with a person's tongue and hits their taste buds. Next, the chocolate starts to melt and becomes silky smooth as the fat dissolves. Finally, saliva mixes with the solid cocoa particles and breaks it down to sugar crystals. That's when people get a rush of happy boosting endorphins. The researchers told the Washington Post chocolate doesn't need a lot of fat, it just needs to be coated in fat. The team hopes their findings will lead to some tasty new chocolates that are healthier, and they say the findings could also apply to other beloved foods like cheese. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.